Hi, everybody. I'm John Donvan of Intelligence Squared U.S., and it is debate time again. So Donald Trump said he was going to be tough on China. And guess what? If tough means talking tough, if it means tariffs, if it means a tango with Taiwan, a lot of T's in that sentence, then Donald Trump is being tough. And if the goal overall is to fashion a coherent response to China's increasingly assertive stance in the world, militarily and economically, well, then how are all of Donald T's T's playing out? In response to choices we've seen coming from this administration, whether they represent continuity with the Obama years or a break from it, is China actually coming around in a way that is conducive to American interests? Well, we think in all of these questions we have the makings of a debate, so that's what we're going to do, asking yes or no to this statement. The recent U.S. policy towards China is productive. We'll have two teams of two who are experts in this topic and ready to argue for and against that resolution. As always, our debate's going to go in three rounds, and then our audience in Aspen, Colorado, gets to choose the winner. As always, if all goes well, civil discourse will also win. Let's meet our debaters. First on the team arguing for the resolution, the recent U.S. policy towards China is productive. Please, ladies and gentlemen, welcome Michael Pillsbury. Michael, um, welcome back to Intelligence Squared. You debated with us before, back in 2007, our second season. You are the director for Chinese strategy at the Hudson Institute. You're a distinguished defense policy advisor. You're a former high-ranking government official under Reagan and Bush, senior, and President Trump called you the leading authority on China. Uh-oh. Do you accept that uh, designation? <laughs> no. no. I'm too modest. Too modest. Okay, Mike, <laughs> Michael, thanks so much for joining us. And, Michael, your partner is Corey Shockey. Ladies and gentlemen, Corey Shockey. Corey, this is your fifth time debating with us. We think that potentially is a record. So welcome to the Five Timers Club. Uh, You are Deputy Director General of the International Institute for Strategic Studies. Before that, you were at the Hoover Institution, and you were the Director for Defense Strategy and Requirements for the National Security Council under George W. Bush. Corey, it's so good to have you back here for time number five. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, the team arguing for the resolution, the recent U.S. policy towards China is productive. Now let's meet the team arguing against this resolution. Please welcome back Graham Allison. Graham, as I say, welcome back, because you've debated with us before, and it's great to have you here again. Uh, You're a professor at the Harvard Kennedy School. You directed its Belfer Center. You're uh, a leading analyst on national security, and you worked under President Clinton and President Reagan. You also noticeably brought to prominence the phrase Thucydides' trap. I'm sure that's going to come up tonight, and not just from uh, from you, uh, because it's become part of the currency of the conversation. Graham, thanks so much for joining us. And you have a partner as well, Jake Sullivan. Jake, you are the only first-timer on the stage. Welcome to Intelligence Squared. Uh, You also worked in public service. You were the National Security Advisor to Vice President Joe Biden, the Director of Policy Planning at the State Department, and now you're a fellow at my alma mater, Dartmouth College, and a visiting professor lecturer at Yale Law. Jake, it's great to have you here. And so on to the debate. Let's start with round one. Round one are opening statements by each debater in turn. Speaking first for the resolution, the recent U.S. policy towards China is productive. Here is Michael Pillsbury, director for Chinese strategy at the Hudson Institute. Michael Pillsbury. Seems to me a good way to start would be to define what are productive policies toward China. My own bias is to look at things 
through the Chinese point of view. So from their point of view, you have to begin with the very first, most important, what the Chinese call the foundation of U.S.-China relations. And there was an incident during the Trump transition that tested this foundation. It's usually known as our one China principle or our one China policy. It was worked out in great secrecy through a series of meetings with Henry Kissinger. It was in the second phase. There was even an earlier phase. And the idea was to recognize Beijing as the only China and to turn Taiwan into a non-country. The Chinese made it clear, if you don't do this, there'll be no relationship. And we're prepared to wait. One of the quotes involved said, 100 years till you come around. Part of the deal is we would not transfer Taiwan to China. They're a non-country, but China cannot have them, cannot claim sovereignty over them. And the Chinese vociferously said, we can never agree to that. So the compromise was both sides would never mention it again. And that's held since 1972 until the president of Taiwan, quote unquote, remember it's a non-country. So she's a non-president. She called up to congratulate Donald Trump. They put out a press release. I just spoke for eight minutes with the president of Taiwan. You never can imagine the Chinese reaction. So to make up for that, the president said, I'd like to meet Xi Jinping one-on-one in Mar-a-Lago soon. The sooner, the better. So the second great productive policy was started. One-on-one meetings. Again, Kissinger pioneered this. Have a small staff, have one-on-one meetings. Don't tell the rest of the U.S. government what you're doing. Have things conducted one-on-one and kept very secret. President Trump bought into that idea. Then at Mar-a-Lago in April of 2017, he, at the request of the Chinese, he terminated the entire U.S.-China framework that had been in place for 10 years. The basic idea was half of their cabinet ministers, half of our cabinet ministers would meet every year or so and do business that way. Cancel. From now on, two cabinet ministers would meet two others, much more effective, much quicker. For the Chinese to be told yes by Donald Trump, you can see that was productive. Third thing, direct telephone conversations and meetings between Xi and Trump. Again, this was established by Nixon in the beginning, continued, I must say, by Jimmy Carter, extended by Ronald Reagan. But the idea was the rest of the government is not involved. It's a president-to-president dialogue about the most sensitive matters in the world. Covert action, security cooperation. This became the fourth example, to me anyway, of productive policy toward China. Something that I think very productive that you might not think of is the Obama administration, if you look carefully, in the last two years of the Obama administration, they began to change their views of China. And before Trump arrived in the White House, I believe at least 10 of our great departments of government, state, treasury, commerce, defense, all began to realize our earlier policies toward China had not been productive. Thanks very much. Michael Pillsbury. Our next debater will be speaking against the resolution. He is Graham Allison, professor of government at Harvard. Ladies and gentlemen, Graham Allison. For a debate about China, I know that the purpose is a debate, but this quartet on the stage is an odd quad. 
since we agree about more than we disagree. So what, specifically, what do we agree about? First, that China is not just an issue on the foreign policy agenda, but the issue. Secondly, that the rivalry between a meteorically rising China and a ruling U.S. will test the presumption that most Americans now take for granted as if great power wars were obsolete. And third, and most importantly, that America's success or failure in mounting an effective response to this challenge will be decisive in shaping the future, not just for Americans, but for the global order. So what then do we disagree about? We disagree in one line about whether the Trump administration's policy is succeeding, not just in beginning to engage, but in fact in mounting an effective response to this reality. In the words of the resolution, whether the Trump administration policies towards China has been productive. According to Webster's, productive means producing beneficial results. So ask yourself, has what the Trump administration has done in relations with China over the past two and a half years successfully advanced American interests? Or in terms that are more familiar uh, to most of us in our own lives, if a member of your family were sick and went to the doctor, is this doctor's prescribed treatment working? Since all the vital signs shout no, it's understandable that Mike and Corey will try to shift the focus of the debate. As the debate manual counsels, when the facts support your case, pound the facts. When they don't, change the subject. So in preparing for this debate, I actually, I read their writings in general, but I reviewed what they've written recently. Among China experts whom the Trump administration listens to, no one has been clearer in sounding an alarm about the dangers of recklessly emboldening Taiwan or acting in ways that lead the Chinese to conclude that we believe that they're our enemy than Mike Pillsbury. Among the four of us, who's offered the most trenchant critique of the Trump administration's foreign policy, including their policies towards China? Read Corey Shockey's article in the current Foreign Affairs. <laughs> After giving Trump credit for, quote, poking holes in pieties and asking questions about longstanding principles, she concludes, and I quote, his answers to those questions have been self-defeating at best and dangerous at worst. And on China specifically, she says, China's economic and military power has significantly expanded. So to conclude, let me identify five questions that all of us have to answer to make a serious assessment of whether the Trump administration's policies towards China are advancing American interests. Questions that Jake will say more about. First, security first. Is America safer than we were before the Trump administration began administering its treatment? Has the erosion of a military advantage in the Pacific slowed? Has the risk of a third-party action that drags us into a war we don't want been reduced? Aren't we stumbling into a new version of Cold War 2.0 without understanding how different the world is today than in 1950? Second, the long-term economic competition with China. Has the American balance sheet strengthened? Indeed, on what Trump's made the central issue, the bilateral trade balance, during the Trump administration, has the deficit shrunk? 
Third, on the geopolitical chessboard. Have the ties between the U.S. and our allies and aligned countries that will be crucial in building a correlation of forces that China has to respond to strengthened or weakened? We wish dearly that the answer to these questions was yes. But I think if you look at the facts, they're stubborn and they answer no. I'm John Donvan. This is Intelligence Squared U.S. We'll hear the rest of our debaters' opening arguments right after this. And a reminder of what's going on. We're halfway through the opening round of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate. I'm John Donvan. We have two teams of two fighting it out over this resolution. The recent U.S. policy towards China is productive. You've heard the first two opening statements. And now on to the third. Arguing for the resolution, we have Corey Shockey, Deputy Director General at the International Institute for Strategic Studies. Ladies and gentlemen, Corey Shockey. So as Graham pointed out, I am not the administration's strongest advocate, but I do believe the approach they are taking to China needs to be taken. The United States has had the right policy towards China for roughly the last 30 years, and it was best said by Robert Zellick, which is that what the United States is seeking to do is have a prosperous, powerful China be a responsible stakeholder of the international order. That's what we wanted. That's what we want now. The problem is that over the last 30 years, quite a lot of data has accrued that that's not what China wants. Xi Jinping stood in the Rose Garden and publicly promised President Obama that they would not militarize the islands they were building in the South China Sea. They have militarized the islands they built in the South China Sea. They are behaving in a predatory way towards their neighbors, many of whom are American allies. They are not uh, honoring their promises not to hack American businesses. They are forcing Communist Party commissars onto the boards of American businesses that operate in China thieving intellectual property from American businesses, threatening American allies. What has changed in American policy, and I would argue it would have needed to change whether President Obama continued, whether President Clinton had been elected, whether President Trump, was that China's behavior argues for a different and sharper-edged American approach. President Trump is right to take a different and sharper-edged approach. The second thing is that what does the United States need if we are actually uh, having to confront a rising China that's rapidly growing more prosperous and rapidly growing more aggressive? We need allies willing and capable to stand shoulder-to-shoulder with us. But we have allies who, over the last 30 years, have allowed more and more of the responsibility for our common security to migrate to the United States. And so while I would not advocate the needless antagonism of America's allies that President Trump has engaged in, the fact that 
allies are worried about whether the United States will honor our obligations to join in their defense has caused a strong uptick in activity by those allies in policy fronts, in defense spending fronts. I wish they weren't doing it because the United States was unreliable under President Trump. But in the long run, we can fix the reliability problem with a different president. The president's approach is cost inefficient, and it pains me to see that he's not doing it in a way that where we can play team sports and build a common front with countries that share our concern. But what the president is succeeding at is driving up the cost to China of not playing by the rules. Thank you, Corey Shockey. One more time, the resolution is the recent U.S. policy towards China is productive. And here making his opening statement, Jake Sullivan, former national security advisor to Vice President Joe Biden. Ladies and gentlemen, Jake Sullivan. Thank you. So those are three tough acts to follow, and I'm an IQ squared rookie, so I'm hoping for some moral support from the audience. Shameless pandering, Jay. (laughs) I'm not above it. Basically, what you heard was essentially a single argument. And that argument was, because Trump has gotten tough, it is therefore a productive policy. Getting tough is not in itself productive. And that... That, by the way, is not some grand lesson of geopolitics. That's something that we tell our kids and our grandkids every single day. And I want to talk about four areas where the administration's policy has not just been unproductive, but counterproductive. Now, in debate, normally you're supposed to only have three points. But unfortunately, the Trump administration didn't confine itself to three shortcomings, so I'm stuck arguing for four. The first of these is that the single most important thing the United States could do to have a productive approach towards China is invest in ourselves, in our sources of national strength. And here, the Trump administration's record is severely lacking. No investment in infrastructure. Massive proposed cuts to our science and research budget. While the Chinese are racing ahead and have, in fact, surpassed us on research and development. We spend $1 for every three the Chinese spend on clean energy. And when it comes to investing in perhaps the greatest source of American strength, immigration, the United States is putting out a not welcome sign to the talent of the world and thereby squandering perhaps our greatest advantage over China. And as long as our immigration policy is broken, it's very hard to see how our approach towards China overall can be considered productive. So we come to this competition with fewer tools and resources. The second area is that a productive approach to China leverages our friends, our allies, and American-led institutions and partnerships. Now, Corey argues, well, we're beating up on our allies, but that's good because now they're stepping up and doing more. The question for us is, why wouldn't we be rallying half to two-thirds of the world's economy, which is all of our like-minded friends and democratic partners around the world, to step up and challenge China on its trade abuses? Why are we going it alone? That, to me, seems like a fundamentally unproductive approach. So that leads me to the third issue, which is that we're not in some kind of battle to the death over ideology with China. However, we are in something of a contest of models. China is presenting an alternative model to the world. And if more countries followed them, it would be adverse to American interests and values. 
This is at a moment when we're trashing our democratic friends and allies and embracing every dictator that we can find, giving more voice and more support to China along the way. And then finally, a productive U.S. approach to China necessarily, necessarily has to balance competition and cooperation. We've completely thrown cooperation out the window in turning China into an enemy and pursuing a self-defeating struggle. And on the single most consequential issue facing not just the United States, but all of humanity, climate change, we have to work with the Chinese. And the Trump administration's approach on this has been the very opposite of productive. Thank you, Jake Sullivan. And that concludes round one of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate, where our resolution is... The recent U.S. policy towards China is productive. Now we move on to round two. We have two debaters arguing for the resolution that the policy is productive. Michael Pillsbury and Corey Shockey, they talk first about the issue of process. They say that because of the style of of President Trump, there's now actually a kind of president-to-president dialogue taking place that sets the grounds for engagement, creates the circumstances for better outcomes. But they also argue that if Trump is being tougher on China, that's because China has asked for it, that China is a predatory power, it's predatory in its trade practices, it's predatory geopolitically in its region, that China's policy and behaviors require a sharper-edged approach, and Donald Trump is delivering it. They also say that if it turns out that the president appears to be an unreliable ally, that there's a silver lining, that it's making our allies just a little bit jittery, and they're coming around to the program, and that might not be such a bad thing. The team arguing against the resolution, Graham Allison and Jake Sullivan, they point out all sides here agree that China is the issue of our time, but they say that productive means something else, that productive means producing results that can be very specifically enumerated, beginning with, is the U.S. safer? Is the U.S. trade balance stronger? And they played a very interesting tactical move by quoting some of their recent writings of their own opponents, which is also always a very effective debating tactic. (laughs) Um, They also say that what we're seeing in the world is a contest of models and that China and the U.S. are in a competition for the most attractive, best, productive model and that democracy as a model because of the practices of Donald Trump is being corroded. So that's some of what divides these two sides, Jake Sullivan. I want you to take on Michael's argument that the president's establishment of a kind of president-to-president dialogue is in itself a, a productive thing. Well, I would start by saying that no process is productive in itself. It is only productive insofar as it is actually generating results. And noticeably absent in Michael's presentation was the results of those conversations. Can I stop you there? Because you just put a challenge to... You, you did not actually produce results. Is that a flaw in your argument? Yes, I did. What are some of them? Well, one of them has been Chinese agreed to come to the trade talks. Mm-hmm. They, they did not... Uh, accept the charges against them. But they came to the talks okay. and they drafted 150 pages of detailed agreements that would provide okay. greatly so increased you, trade. Between you the you US gave an example. And I've interrupted you mid-flow, so go. go because up. I think this is actually also larger than just the lack of results. And the problem with our approach to China policy is that there are about six or seven different China policies in this administration. One day, Huawei is a threat to national security. The next day, it's a bargaining chip at the uh, trade negotiating table. One day, Mike Pompeo is saying, we stand in solidarity with the protesters in Hong Kong. The next day, Donald Trump is saying, that's China's issue, and we don't have anything to do with it. One day, the president is questioning the one China policy. The next day, they're pulling it back. So... 
having this channel has not actually even inherently been productive, let alone the results that it's seeking to Corey produce Shockey, at the end of the respond day. To that. I do think that the president's erratic behavior has caused the Chinese to wonder whether they are taking the right approach to the United States. Do you think I, it's calculated? No. <laughs> <laughs> I think I'll stop there. <laughs> so, Graham, yeah. Graham Allison. Yeah, well, I, I agree completely with Corey that the Chinese government f- finds Trump mystifying the way many Americans do. I've had conversations in Beijing with people who work directly for Xi Jinping, and they say, we have an c- extremely difficult time understanding who this person is and what he cares about. We have a conversation, and then there's a different conversation. We hear different noises from the administration. As one day, Pence gives a speech that declares Cold War 2.0. The next day, there's a phone call that says, we didn't really mean that. Then Pence sets up a speech that he's going to attack uh, Chinese for their activity in Hong Kong. Uh, All of a sudden, uh, he's not giving that speech this week, maybe next week, maybe the week after. So I think there's a considerable amount of confusion. And the idea that, well, we go this way one day, we go what that way the next day, we keep them confused. Well, actually, if it were producing results, I might even have some respect for it. But I think, first, it's not producing results. And second, I think it is as confused as it looks. What would be a result? What would be an ex- a, 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 a goal that... A, a result would be, for example... Trade deal. That uh, in the South China Sea, the example that Corey mentioned, here Xi Jinping agreed that they were not militarizing the South China Sea. Then, it instead, is intensifying its efforts to fortify these features by building infrastructures and a range of military structures. So basically, it's gotten worse. All right, let me take that to Michael Pillsbury because he's talking about all kinds of stuff is not happening that should be happening that could be happening because of the uh, policy and position from the Trump administration that he's describing as erratic and confusing mm-hmm. to the Chinese. Can you respond to that Sure. In, in terms of the South China Sea context? Well, a lot of Jake's and Graham's points I think are very good. I admire good ideas when I hear them. But there are a couple of mistakes that they've made that I need to correct, and they're relevant to the South China Sea. And the mistakes actually could be tragic. When you say, and there's a letter by a hundred scholars saying President Trump treats China as an enemy, and this is counterproductive. I searched through 200 documents, speeches of the Trump administration. The word enemy has never been used. In fact, you have the opposite. We had the applause for the Hong Kong demonstrations. Here's the president. He didn't say students demonstrate more. He sided with President Xi. But when the hawks in Beijing, when they hear Jake, or when they hear the hundred scholars say, oh, Trump treats China as an enemy, you know what they think? Well, maybe he must treat China as an enemy. This fuels the rage in China against the United States, and it's simply not true. Let me, let me take your response to the... Which is quite your, dangerous. To, to your, your opponents lay down a challenge that they don't think the Trump administration's policy is leading to a good outcome for the U.S. interests in the South China Sea. That was your opponent's response to it. Jake, what is your response to that response? What I was saying was the approach of the administration has closed off the avenues to cooperation, including on critical issues like climate change, and widened the avenues for a kind of self-defeating competition that I think is deeply dangerous Mm -hmm. and that you yourself have warned about in your Atlantic (laughs) speech in, in talking about 
a totality of steps that move us towards China becoming an enemy. But on the point, this, this question of whether results have been produced in the South China Sea, Graham said it well. China has intensified its militarization of the South China Sea, not decreased it. It has increased the degree to which it is modernizing its military and closing the gap with the United States. And part of the way that it's done that is because while we're investing in legacy systems like aircraft carriers, they're investing in asymmetric capabilities like missiles that can kill aircraft carriers. And for every $10,000 we spend on an aircraft carrier, they spend $1 on a missile that can destroy that aircraft carrier. Corey Shockey. So I agree that China is growing more aggressive, more predatory towards American interests and America's friends in the region. But that's not a function of Donald Trump being elected or Donald Trump's policies. It's a function of a rising China believing it deserves to have greater weight. It deserves to have in their minds a region of influence that we back away from, and they have been for 20 years building the military capabilities to do that. So it's not new, and the Trump administration is actually countering that pretty assertively, for example. let me bring in something that is arguably more a result of President Trump being elected. Tariffs. Yeah. Uh, Tariffs. Are, are the tariffs that the president has been uh, slamming against China productive? So I do believe a policy that imposes enough costs on China that they begin to play by the rules of the international economic order rather than just taking the benefits of partial participation, partial opening of their markets, partial access for others. In the long run, that could be useful. How long? But no, I mean, like, uh, the president not only can't do basic math, he doesn't understand that American consumers are paying the tariffs. People in the administration who favor the tariffs, people in the administration who favor the tariffs, though, make a decent point that us accepting near-term risk to reset the rules that China plays by is a near-term loss that brings us long-term gain. And I think okay, so that's saying, a testable I, proposition. So you're saying there's a rational reason for the tariffs, and uh, it, it, time, will tell, time will tell. You're not saying how much time necessarily. Very wise move, but I want to take that to your yeah. opponents. If we're, if we're, when we're trying to make the case for tariffs being effective in producing results, I'll give you one for your side. Thank you. <laughs> Sanctioning Canada on national security grounds for steel imports, has done more to lift the confidence of the Canadian Defense Forces than any action in history. They now stand like 10 feet tall. Canadians never thought they could be a national security threat to anybody. But now, lo and behold, the tariffs that the Trump administration has, has, uh, has enacted are basically promiscuous. We've been as vigorous in prosecuting with tariffs our allies as our adversaries. And if the objective were to get the Chinese to play by a set of rules, the TPP would have had 40% of the global economy negotiating with 18% of the global economy. That's China. When we come back, we'll hear questions from the live audience in Aspen. You're listening to Intelligence Squared U.S. 
I'm John Donvan, and this is Intelligence Squared U.S. Right now, we're in the middle of questions for our four talented debaters who are going head-to-head on this resolution. The recent U.S. policy towards China is productive. So let's listen into some of those questions from the audience. I'm Jeff Volk. We talk about North Korea, the largest proliferator of nuclear weapons, I believe, in that region, is Pakistan. Has the Trump administration approach to China enhanced U.S. interest in Pakistan? Yes. As a matter of fact, you might uh, extend your question by pointing, asking, why does Pakistan have nuclear weapons? Okay. We're, it's China who gave them the design, and China has never acknowledged this, but the whole world says so. So one of the areas where the U.S. and China can work together and have successfully, China no longer transfers nuclear weapons designed to other countries. They're quite supportive in the non-proliferation effort. This is not something new with President Trump. But remember, this is a debate about China policy and the effectiveness of China policy. So in the area of non-proliferation, China and the U.S. have cooperated quite extensively. It's very impressive, I think. You asked the question with respect to Pakistan and nuclear weapons. What his answer said correctly is, in order to prevent the proliferation of nuclear weapons, for decades, the U.S. and China have worked together positively. Not always, but positively. Therefore, that helps us understand that if we don't find a way to work together about things that really matter to the two of us, like proliferation or like climate, we go backwards in terms of the results that we care about. If you could stand up again, please. Thanks. Yes, Stuart Tabin. I wonder if any of you could comment on whether you think the tariff policy of the Trump administration has resulted in the reduced GDP growth rate in China currently, and whether you think the tariff policy will continue to cause a diminution in that growth rate. And also, is that a good thing? Is that a goal? It is a good thing, and it's been cut by about 0.5% according to a Barclays Bank study, which is online. It's a microeconomic study. The Chinese are very worried about this. Uh, President Trump has in some ways encouraged their worrying because he said six times now on different TV shows that if Hillary Clinton had won, uh, China would be surpassing America now and that this is not going to happen on my watch. Jake. Going from 6.7 GDP growth last year to 6.2% China GDP growth this year, if that's your measure of productive policy, we are going to lose over the long term. Because at the end of the day, while we are imposing these tariffs and, and American farmers and consumers are paying all the costs while China lowers its tariffs for everyone else, we are focused on steel, soy, coal. China's focused on quantum computing, AI, biotechnology, they're not thinking about their growth rate in the next quarter. They're thinking about their growth rate in the next quarter century. And for me, a tariff policy that goes down this, this road is not ultimately going to generate a positive outcome for the United States. I would just maybe add one point, which is I don't think the 0.5% diminution of growth is a big problem for the Chinese economy. But if the uncertainty associated with tariffs as a bludgeon and with economics as a major tool of statecraft continue, you are going to see the divergence of supply chains. And that will be an enormous problem for China and its continued growth. I agree with Jake, though, that we should actually want a prosperous China. We should just want a prosperous China that plays by the rules. That's what President Trump says, by the way. Prosperous China that plays by the rules. Just two facts. 
the bilateral trade deficit with China under Trump. It's grown by 18%. It's successfully expanding the deficit. Secondly, with respect to the growth, Trump likes to talk about China is overtaking the U.S. I study this very carefully. The Chinese in the period since Trump became president have closed the gap between how tall we are and how tall they are by 14%. They're continuing to grow at 6.2%. We grow at 3%. All of us can do the math. Okay. Oh, yeah. Hi, I'm Jane Harmon. Great debate. Really applaud you all. Uh, A topic that Jake raised that no one has come back to is immigration. You know, I, I personally think Trump's immigration policies are flawed, but I want to ask about Chinese students studying in the United States. I think there are 350,000 of them. They pay full freight, so universities love it. My view is that they become ambassadors for the United States when they go home, and my question is, are Trump's policies on immigration and students productive? I'll take that one. Of course um, The short answer is no. But there is a legitimate concern about Chinese students and Chinese scholars getting intellectual capital that gets fed into China's military program in a way that if you think there's a risk of war with China and we're actually going to have to fight the Chinese military, they're not wrong to be anxious about that. But as with so many other things... Instead of having a precise policy that solves the specific problem, they're big and sloppy and it's damaging. But the great good thing, the saving grace of our sweet provincial country is that the federal government isn't actually mostly what people know about us or even have the ability to take action on a whole bunch of things. My favorite example of which is that despite withdrawing from the Paris Climate Accords Agreement, despite the overt hostility of the federal government, despite many states rolling back regulatory regimes, Antonio Guterres, the UN Secretary General, announced about three months that the first country that is going to meet its Paris Climate Accord goals is the United States of America. Because states, actions, civil society groups, self-interested business decisions, my mom wanting the place to be habitable for her great-grandchildren, all of those things work. And on immigration, that's what's saving us. That people still want to come to American universities. They still think, if I become an American, my kid can grow up and run the country. And they don't think that in Beijing. So we still do have a dynamic on immigration. Jacob Sparkle. I think the broader Trump immigration policy lands squarely at the feet of the president. And it is putting a not welcome here sign out to so much talent from so many parts of the world. And that comes at great moral and strategic cost to the United States. But I think on the specific question of Chinese students, there's actually some blame to go around. I think too many Democrats in Washington have joined with Republicans in going overboard on pushing these legitimate national security concerns into territory that says, if you're coming from China, you must necessarily just be a tool of the PLA. And I don't think that's right. Most of the work done at universities is open source. It's published for everyone to see. So most of the work that these Chinese students are doing is not some secret thing that they get access to because they paid tuition. They could get it anywhere. 
Since no one seems to want to be the vessel of the question that I want asked, I do want to put it out there. It was a major part of Jake's opening statement that one of the harms he feels is being caused by the present policy out of the White House in regard to China is that China already had been, but is gaining even more ground as an attractive model to various other states around the world as an authoritarian model, one that uh, engages and encourages surveillance of its population, and that this is at the expense of the model that the U.S. has promulgated since the Second World War, and that that's a bad thing. Corey Shockey, do you want to take that on? While the disgraceful spectacle of American politics right now is certainly not advancing brand America in the world, it's also not wholly bad. The open discourse we have as a society, the way that people care desperately about solving these problems or arguing about these problems, that too is an example. And it's not terrible, even though it's sometimes distasteful. The two real things uh, that as much or it seems to me possibly more than President Trump's behavior that have made authoritarian capitalism as the Chinese practice and export it. What the Chinese say is that America's mistakes after the September 11th attacks, in particular the war in Iraq and the 2008 financial crisis, show that the the American model is just too difficult to handle, right? The, the vacillations of fortune are too much. The predictability of the Chinese model is what you should trust. And that does have some appeal. But we are living through the great test of Hegel's philosophy that as people grow more prosperous, they become more demanding political consumers. And while the Chinese government is trying to stamp out that notion, And if the Chinese government genuinely didn't think Hegel was right, they wouldn't have to build a surveillance state to control their Mm -hmm. own population. But they do. Jake, do you have a response to that? We need to be able to make the case to countries around the world that a democratic free market system can deliver for them and that there is an appealing kind of quality, a moral authority to that system that is superior to this fusion of authoritarianism and technology that China is selling. And I just don't believe that if you look at the record of the last 30 months, you could argue that our appeal, our moral authority, our capacity to make that case to people around the world has gotten better rather than worse. Last word to you, Michael. They've got a $12 billion budget for soft power activities around the world. It's a massive onslaught. Part of it starts in Beijing where they demonize America. Not Trump, they demonize America. We don't really have a response for this. And the organization that used to do this for us, United States Information Agency in charge of public diplomacy, shut down as a Cold War agency. It seems to me if you look back in 1947, the challenge of the Soviet Union, we created the Joint Chiefs of Staff, created the CIA, created the National Security Council. We've done nothing in terms of our government organization about dealing with China. Now we move on to round three. Round three will be closing statements by each debater in turn. And speaking first, making his closing statement in support of the resolution, the recent U.S. policy towards China is productive, Michael Pillsbury, Director for Chinese Strategy at the Hudson Institute. Barack Obama started going down the right path toward a tougher line toward China. He began to send U.S. Navy warships through excessive Chinese territorial claims. And in one case, his team knew that if you do acts of war inside the territorial zone, the other side could get quite excited. But President Obama had the courage to do it anyway. 
in September 2016, he sent a U.S. Navy destroyer that zigzagged its way through a Chinese island claim. This is the beginning of showing that China is not going to get away with it in the South China Sea. A United Nations-related body ruled against China's claims. This gets back to the liberal world order that somehow the Chinese government has got to be dissuaded from these policies. So Obama started it. Trump has continued it. It's not nearly enough. And I would just try to close and get your vote by saying how much are we going to have to do to bring China around to what we all thought China was going to be 30 years ago? Free market, some kind of democracy, pro-American somehow, and, and appreciation and gratitude for all we've done to build up China. Michael Pillsbury, the resolution. Again, the recent U.S. policy towards China is productive, and here to make his closing statement against the resolution, Graham Allison, professor of government at Harvard. President Trump has added an additional $2 trillion to the American debt, imposed tariffs on virtually everybody, interrupted supply chains, as Corey said, in ways that uh, make people worry about the reliability of U.S. as a supplier. On the security front, as the chairman of the JCS said recently, he's not wrong. China's erosion of U.S. military advantage continues, just on the same pace. In stumbling towards a Cold War 2.0, which is the way at least some members of the administration uh, talk about Vice President Pence's speech, we're basically missing the necessity to cooperate with China in areas like nonproliferation that Michael mentioned, where cooperation is essential. By attacking our allies with as much enthusiasm as when we're attacking our adversaries and communicating such unambiguous disrespect for the leaders of other countries that we've got to assemble, if we're going to have a coalition, we're basically going backwards. That's not enhancing our strength, but weakening it. The Pew poll finds 70% of the international community now expresses no confidence in the Trump global leadership. And as Gallup found for the first time ever, more of the world supports China than America's leadership in Asia. So to return to the resolution, I can't help but think of a medical analogy from America's first president. George Washington was sick. He had a fever, called the doctors. They came to Mount Vernon. They put leeches on him. It got better for a couple of days, and then he died. (laughs) Thank you. Graham Allison. The resolution, the recent U.S. policy towards China is productive. Here making her closing in support of the motion, Corey Shockey, Deputy Director General at the International Institute for Strategic Studies. So Jake Sullivan raised a really important challenge, which is why aren't countries rallying to our side to contest China's breaking of the rules as it rises? And I'm sympathetic to the argument that the president is needlessly antagonizing our friends. But that's not the only reason countries aren't rallying to our side. And in particular, it's not the reason that the countries closest to China geographically and most imposed on by China in security, the ones who have the most to lose if China is able to reset the rules of the international order, the reason that those countries are not rallying to our side is they currently have the very advantageous circumstance that they do the majority of their business with China, enriching themselves and enriching China, and they have security guarantees from the United United States, that if China gets out of line, that we will protect them. 
it's the free rider problem. Countries want the ability to have us solve their problems. And I wish the president found more constructive ways to engage that. But you do begin to see countries in the region take more responsibility for their outcomes. And ultimately, that will be good for us because when a more dignified and polite president, one who uh, gets elected, you can rebuild that sense of sameness. And here to make his closing statement against the resolution, Jake Sullivan, former national security advisor to Vice President Joe Biden. You know, when your argument that the policy is productive is contingent on electing another president to change the policy, it does raise a real question about how productive you are. If I were on, if I had been assigned to the other side of this debate, I think I would have asked John if I could have argued that it's productive for China, because I think I could have won that resolution hands down. If you think about what China has tried to achieve over the past many years, undermine U.S. alliances. The Trump policy has helped them with that. Reduce American influence in international institutions and increase their own. The Trump policy has helped them with that. Reduce the innovation edge of the United States. Trump putting a budget forward to the Congress that slashes research and development while China races ahead has helped them with that undermine the appeal of democracy and enhance the appeal of authoritarian capitalism. The Trump strategy has been productive for China in that respect. Thank you, Jake Sullivan. And that concludes the final round of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate. I now have the final results. Again, the resolution, the recent U.S. policy towards China is productive. On the first vote from the audience here in Aspen, 26% of you agreed with this resolution, 51% disagreed, 23% were undecided. Again, I want to remind you it's the difference between the first results and the second vote that I'm about to announce that determines our winner. On the second vote, the resolution, recent U.S. policy towards China is productive. The first vote, 26%. The second vote for the four side was 15%. They lost 11 percentage points. For the other side, the side arguing against, their first vote was 51%. Their second vote, 83%. They pulled up 32 percentage points. That makes the team arguing against the resolution, our winners, against the resolution that the recent U.S. policy towards China is productive. Congratulations to them. Thank you for me, John Donvan, and Intelligence Squared U.S. We'll see you next time. This debate was recorded live at the Pepke Auditorium in Aspen, Colorado, in partnership with the Aspen Strategy Group. Intelligence Squared U.S. debates are made possible by generous contributions from listeners like you and with support from the Rosencrantz Foundation. Leah Mathau is our chief content officer. Shay O'Mara is manager of editorial operations. Connor Kerfman is our creative and marketing strategist. Aaron Dalton and Mary Dewey are the radio producers. Damon Whittemore is the audio engineer. Robert Rosencrantz is our chairman. And I'm your host, John Donvan. One last thing now. We are asking for your help. Because when you give Intelligence Squared U.S. debates five stars on Apple Podcasts or Google Play, you help other people find us. So if you enjoy our debates and our podcasts, please rate and review us today. I'm sure we agree on one thing. America needs reasoned, balanced discussion now more than ever.